HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Patina Events at Brooklyn Botanic Garden, an idyllic location for weddings, corporate events, and parties of any style. Visit us at patinaevents.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're exploring interactions from drug studies in a laboratory. If this effect is as big as he's saying, somebody should have discovered this long before he did. To global wisdom on avoiding hangovers. Beber cerveza antes de tomar vino no previene los Be- síntomas. Beer before wine, you're going to be fine. Wine before beer, you're going to be queer. To the novel recipes developed by an Indian American family deep in the heart of Texas. And then my mom's sort of coming to America and learning that uh, white parents love to melt cheese on things to get their kids to eat it. She was like, this is genius. (laughs) Be sure to subscribe to Meat in 3. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Darren Bresnitz. This week, we are dedicating the entire show to Netflix's new series, Street Food. We sit down with the co-creators and co-EPs David Gelb and Brian McGinn to hear about the struggles, the stories, and the overall success of the new series. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Snacky Tunes here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky Tunes. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Darren Bresnitz. We are with the co-creators and EPs of Netflix's new hot food show, Street Food. We're with David Gubb and Brian McGinn. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you for having us. Thank you. It's hot. People are talking, right? It's on. It's it's out there. I've seen it out there. Um, and I love it. And I can say that I wouldn't be here if I didn't really love it. Um, but enough about me. On to you guys. When did the... Uh, first idea of this show start to come about when did you want to start telling these type of stories and did you have these restaurants or these ideas in your back pocket when you were traveling the world wow uh well i think we first became interested in street food well i mean we've always been interested in street food because we've been lucky enough to for chef's table and uh a number of other things we've been able to travel the the world over the past number of years and one of the things that has been, we've been so lucky is is that 
in every city that we go to, people want to take us to the places that they're excited to share. Um, and a lot of those places happen to be casual street food restaurants, the places that you go every single day to eat. Um, and so what was so exciting for us was in eating this food around the world, we started going, oh, man, these people are artisans, masters of their craft in the same, you know, have dedicated their lives to pursuing greatness, just like a chef on Chef's Table, or just like Jiro in David's uh, movie, Jiro Dreams of Sushi. And so for us, the idea of being able to shine a light on these people who are carrying family and cultural traditions forward, you know, having made the same dish for 30, 40, 50 years, and, and, and supported their families and supported their communities, for us, that was just such an exciting thing to explore. So that, that was kind of the genesis of the show. Um, and from there, gosh, I mean, it was quite a journey to actually figure out who to feature on the show. Um, it was not the same process as Chef's Table because there's much less written about street food vendors. These are people who, you know, uh, are not getting media attention in most cases. And so what we actually did was we built from the ground up a network of cultural experts, food experts in each country that we were looking at, and then each city that we were looking at, and then finally working with our local teams in each place to identify a long list of potential people that were all making amazing food and had cool stories. And that, that was sort of the genesis of how we actually settled on the people that we feature on the show. I mean, one of the biggest differences between Chef's Table uh, and Street Food is that you're focusing on more than one chef, but you're also really bringing to life the city and showing how these restaurants really make up the community, really make up the fabric of it. Um, how did you decide to focus on the larger, pull out a little bit just from the one personal story of the chef and really focus on what it means to the city as a whole and how it defines the culture? Sure. Well, I think that the street food vendors, they're part of the city. They're part of the daily life in these cities. And so it's a daily routine for many people. They wake up, they head to work, and they grab some street food at their favorite vendor for breakfast, say, on the way to work. And then on the way home, it's the same kind of thing. And so they're, these, 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 and, and same thing for lunch. And so these vendors are part of just the fabric of the city. And so much of the history of the city is also reflected in what they're serving in the street food. So we found that a really, it was just, we wanted to do something that was different from Chef's Table that really integrated the fabric of the, the culture of this place. And so we follow one main storyline, the context of that person's life within the city, how the culture of the city affects the food. And then we just kind of like dip out and see some of these other little moments, you know, these other little char these other characters. Um, and then we come back to our kind of main storyline. And so uh, I, I think we're really happy with how that kind of turned out and how it's something that's really kind of different from Chef's Table while still retaining the, you know, the cinematic values um, that made Chef's Table cool. You know, America is probably lower on the list of a consistent street food scene. L.A., you know, has a pretty good street food scene, but in most cities, not built into the fabric stuff. When I think about the Delhi episode, when I think about the Saigon episode where it was like one out of every ten person makes their living off the street. Uh, but the story that I liked the most about it was, and if I butcher the name, I'm sorry, but when uh, Kun Satep, uh, when he, his restaurant was falling apart and he was losing money, the community actually rallied around him to bring him to that. So, and as much as the food influences the community, the community also influences the food. So you can talk a little about striking that balance and showing the people who are also the customers 
um, who are, play a part of the story. I mean, sure. I mean, the again, like you know, the street food vendors—they're they're part of the everyday lives of the people, and they wouldn't be there if they didn't have the kind of demand of the people to 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 want to eat at their at their spots. Um, there's this great quote in our Bangkok episode when they're talking about how. Uh, the government, you know, the Thai government is trying to relocate all of the street food vendors into these centralized locations. But, you know, that would be a big problem, not just for the street food vendors, but for the people who want to be eating there. Who Remember, it's part of their daily commute. It's part of their normal routine. Um, and so, uh, as they, they say in the episode, our, our expert in that episode talks about how, um, you know, it's not that... Uh, the people are getting are doing this big favor to JFI by giving them the sidewalk space. JFI is doing a service to the community that even at seventy, she's still doing it every day. She doesn't have to be the one who's up there cooking every day, but she does it because she loves the people and they love her, and it's this relationship. You know, this list that you guys have, and you mentioned it just before about the fixers. I feel that like you could probably do the same city with different casting every time. Because there's so many people and there's so many great foods and the list of just, I mean, there's some dishes I've, ne- I've never heard of. You know, you go, oh yeah, I know Thai food. And then you watch the episode and you go, I don't know anything about Thai food. <laughs> so um, how did you call that list down? I know you had local fixers, but were you looking for common traits? Like, was there something that across different cities, different episodes that you were looking for in the people who you featured? And what were those traits? Yeah. And what were the stories you were trying to tell as well? Well, first of all, you're totally right that in each one of these cities... I mean, we're talking about there's thousands and thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of vendors that are making their living by making street food and have incredible stories and make dishes that are tied to their personal and cultural histories and family histories. So, yeah, I mean, we could we could make uh, we could make 100 seasons of, of street food <laughs> and, and only be scratching the surface. Um, for us, the, I think the things that were really exciting we're discovering how much food kind of unites uh, families, unites people across class lines, across racial divides, across all of these different ways that, w- that people like to kind of create identities about themselves. And the idea that food can be this thing that brings people together rather than splits people apart was something that we loved discovering in all of the countries we were that we were featuring. So for us, that was really exciting. I think that both David and I were really inspired by the late Anthony Bourdain and the way that that he was able to, you know, show how food can be a uniting force and sitting down across from someone and breaking bread with them or cooking with them can be a way to, to walk in their shoes for a moment. And I think that that's what we were really looking for. We're people that could introduce our viewers, introduce our teams into their lives and say, hey, here's what we're doing. Uh, here's our story and and try to create kind of mutual empathy because I think that's such a valuable thing in in an, in an era where that's, that's kind of going away. I mean, you deal on this topic of authenticity, which is such a moving target in these last few years, especially when it comes to food. But there was a quote in one of the episodes, uh, if someone has to taste real food, authentic food, it has to be street food, which I feel really does sum up a lot of the series. Um, how did you balance that hunt for authenticity versus the storytelling versus what makes good TV? We all, we have the saying, and we've been going back to this on, I, I love sayings, um, going back to Chef's Table, and, and we lean into the truth. Mm. And the truth is, 
is that when somebody has a great story, that often leads to their food being extraordinary because they're cooking for a purpose. There's like a reason, there's something that's driving them. So whether it's they're cooking because they want to keep uh, this recipe that their great, great grandfather or grandmother first started, or if they're doing because they want to prove something about you know how they can take a classic and elevate it and make it even better or something like that. There's a, when they have a reason to cook, it makes the food extraordinary. So when we find something that's extraordinary, that looks beautiful, there's a reason for that. There's there's always some kind of history or story that leads to that kind of this artistic achievement, you know. Yeah. And one of the things that I think we found on this show that that was really interesting for us is that cooking food for a number of the people that we feature on the show started as a necessity. So it sort of it sort of began as something that it was not necessarily a dream profession or there was not the goal of being the best in the world or or any of those uh, kind of initial impetuses for starting to cook. It was, how do I support my family? How do I show my son that he, or my daughter that they can choose uh, to pursue any life, that they're, not, that they're not locked into a way of thinking um, about themselves? So that was something that was exciting for us in a lot of these stories, was discovering how in, through the course of people's lives and their careers – food can transform from this thing that became that was a necessity where you had to cook to survive to something where it becomes an incredible source of pride for not only personal and familial reasons but also for cultural reasons for neighborhood reasons for city regions uh so that was super exciting for us and that's something that runs throughout a number of these stories yeah and i'll give you a quick example um you know and it, because sometimes we don't necessarily know what the backstory is because nobody's ever written in depth or even asked these questions of some of our vendors. So if you look at our Toyo uh, episode, you know, the episode that's set in Osaka, you know, here's this guy, we knew he was gonna be an amazing character. He puts on this incredible show, he's like a comedian. You know, his food looks really cool, um, you know, he's doing pull-ups and he's, you know, taking off his shirt and giving it to the customers as souvenirs and blast, you know, he lights a cigarette with this giant blowtorch that he's like cooking his food with. It's like a great show. We knew that he was this great character you know, his secret is, you know, he takes some of the off pieces of fish, not off pieces, but I would say the unusual cuts of fish that normally, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, definitely wouldn't see at a sushi restaurant, but he found a way to make them delicious. And then simply in our interview, asking about his childhood, you get this emotional um, story about how when he was little, his dad wouldn't like, he always loved eating the school lunch. And then his dad said, you know, there's no more school lunch. And his dad was cruel. He was, a, he was an alcoholic. He, um, stopped him from, from from getting to eat these school lunches. And so purely for survival, Toyo would go and gather like weeds from fields and stuff. He would find things in the field and make these stir fries with things that you could barely consider a vegetable. And he found a way to make it work so that he could eat it just to survive. And so you can see the connection between that and then what he's cooking today, which is, you know, much more desirable than these weed, these field stir fries that he used to make. But we really had no idea about a lot of these stories. Um, but as we dug, we knew that he was going to be great. And then you dig and you find the backstory and you're like, wow, like these connections really do exist. It's quite amazing what we were able to discover. And these guys are just incredibly inspirational. Amazing. Well, we're going to take a quick musical break. We're going to play from the Song of the Archives. And then we're going to come back and keep talking about street food with David and Brian. Uh, here we go on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. <laughs> Those were the days we were young 
Hello and welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We are with David and Brian, co-creators and EP of Netflix's new food show, Street Food. So one of the common themes for both bad and good is family. And this show is really all about tradition or bucking tradition or necessity uh, and situation caused by family ties. Um, But the ones that are really... I really loved are the ones where people embrace their family traditions. So, you know, you have Trucks Mud Creepers, uh, you have Dashlan Shot in India, you have the Hawkers of Singapore. Like, there's just all these great things of these people who have embraced it. And on the flip side, you see this generational thing of where parents don't want their kids to go into it, but sometimes that's the only thing that the kids know. And in many ways, what the kids have done with this generation, and I think maybe in part to what's happened to food media, is taking the food beyond uh, what their parents ever thought it could be. Um, and there's this quote that you guys have about uh, destination food from common dishes. 
And so I was wondering if you guys could talk about some of your discovery, some of the food you came across, some of the generational stories that were really inspiring and, and a chance to maybe see one generation and their kids and how they interacted. Well, I think, first off, I, I, would, I, I don't think that we were in any way, shape, or form discovering anything. I think one of the things that was really important for us in, in building these kind of local networks of people was we wanted when anyone watched the show from one of these cities or countries to feel as though their their world was reflected back to them. That was really important for us because as a bunch of people from California, we, we don't really know exactly what day-to-day life is like in a lot of these places. So that that's kind of the first thing for us was we, you know, we were hopefully just shining a light on, on some incredible people. Um, and I, I think one of my personal favorite stories is uh, Emba Satinam in uh, Yogyakarta, Indonesia. And she is, we're, we're not entirely sure exactly how old she is. <laughs> and she's, uh, I don't know, and she's, and she's, she's not, not entirely right. sure either. <laughs> that is why we are not sure. <laughs> uh, and she uh, has been cooking Jajan Pasar, which is basically sweet treats from the market. Um, these uh, delicacies that are very sweet and delicious kind of dessert treats uh, for I mean, five decades now, and she learned from her mother. And the the story of the episode is all about how she has she has basically carried on this tradition that her mother passed on to her, and then her mother goes through a transformative experience in her family life, and essentially leaves the tradition to Emba Satina to carry forward. And I think that was something that we found a lot of is that. Oftentimes, people are presented with this choice. Will, will I continue the family tradition or will I not? And I think in a lot of the people who we featured on the show, we, we tried to show a range of how people responded to, to that question. In Taiwan, Grace, our, our featured vendor there, she takes the family recipe and then she tries to uh, bring it into the modern era in terms of how can we spread my family's amazing recipe as far and wide through internet orders. We're going to transform street food by adding an internet ordering feature, right? And then you have people like Emma Satinam who are still selling on the street, doing it just how her mother did it and carrying on the tradition that way. And the expert in that episode says this beautiful thing, which is you basically, you could taste the full sweetness of history in her uh, in her food. So I think that was really exciting for us was to show the idea that, you know, history is so embedded into these dishes and it's not only cultural, it's personal. And there's many different ways of, of kind of carrying those traditions forward, you know, from from changing and updating dishes to changing and updating the way that people order. You know, it's like, how does technology affect street food? That was an interesting yeah. question. And there's this uh, certain kind of very relatable kind of familial element. Um, for example, in uh, our Taiwan episode in Chai, um, you know, Grace in trying is trying to update the family business, but she's meeting resistance from her parents who only know it the way that they've done it. And they, and they tell her like, oh, we want you to take this, you know, we want this to be your mantle to carry. But whenever she tries to change something, they're complaining about it or, you know, they're selling uh, the internet orders that have been prepared just to the people who are just waiting online there and like undermining her whole internet system. And I think that's kind of relatable for anybody who's tried to do a project or something with their parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so you know that kind of like family drama is quite relatable 
And so, you know, we just want to show you that these are, they're just, you know, we're all the same. And, and food often, I think people often forget that there's the exact same relationships in the food world that there are outside the food world. And I think one of the things that was initially inspiring to me and David's work before we started working together was this idea that that something could ostensibly be about food, but could really be about a father-son relationship. Mm-hmm. Or in this, in the story, in, in the case of street food, something could ostensibly be about being a street vendor and selling food to your neighborhood, but it could also be about how do I support my kids? How do I, how do I push forward my family tradition? All of those things that are integral, out, well outside the food world, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it seems that also with the families is also tied up with money as well. And that circumstantial of having money or not having money in many of the cases is really what's driving a lot of these people to go into it, which you brought up before, is that that was the only way to survive and feed their family or just get anything for that. Um, But you've also been on the other end with Chef's Table where you've seen the spigots open, like it's endless money and things like that. But I want to see if there was any times where when you saw what endless money could do versus no money could do and where that actually didn't make a difference. And if you found any overlapping of where just cooking the food and the desire to put up the best plate of whatever you can was all that really mattered. Um, you know, I think our experience in making first, first making Jerry James of Sushi and then moving to Chef's Table and how Chef's Table has evolved has been, you know, really informative for us because when I made, you know, Jiro Dreams of Sushi, you know, I was like, okay, well, this, this really works as a feature because he's, his, his, his meal is so, it looks simple, but it's so complicated. And, um, you know, it's a whole coursed out thing. You know, we have this scene that we call the, the sushi concerto where, you know, he talks about the three acts of a meal at Jiro's restaurant. And then when we moved to Chef's Table, we're like, okay, we're going to continue these very sophisticated, believing kind of that you kind of, for the show to work, it requires the super high-end kind of format where there's so much kind of um, sophisticated thought and uh, kind of almost like complication and then uh, a tasting course kind of thing. But as the show progressed, we realized that, you know, it's, it's a story is a story. And the stories about people who kind of are doing it for survival are, 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 are kind of can, can, can be deeper and yet just as uh, sophisticated as any of the chef's table stories. And I think that, I think that, that so as you see, as we've moved on with chefs, as we continued with chef's table, we've been able to introduce, you know, Ivan Orkin, who, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a ramen bowl, you know, it's a really good ramen bowl, but you know, it's ramen. Or um, Nancy Silverton, who's working on pizzas and pastas and salads, and then uh, John Kwan, who doesn't even have a restaurant, to Christina Martinez um, and her barbacoa place. It just realizes that like it doesn't need to be complicated and fancy. It doesn't have to be about being the best in the world or getting your three Michelin stars or whatever it is. You know, it's about just a beautiful human story, and I think that was what. I mean, I think that that was what really started to excite us. The unifying thing is passion. Yes. I think in, in all it, it's it doesn't matter what venue you're doing something in if you're passionate about it, you know. And I think what you see from three Michelin star kitchens to the street food vendors that we feature on street food is they are unified by an incredible passion. There are people who will put their work and doing things the right way, uh, and of course, the right way is their personal way of doing things in their opinion, right? But doing things the right way, that will come first, and that's a priority. And I think people people that are willing to sacrifice for their passion, for the things that they care about, 
are intrinsically interesting and we can all learn something from them. So that that is, I think, one thing that we've really learned in in being lucky enough to make these these shows and films over the last few years is how, how what a unifying force passion is in our world and how interesting people are when they dedicate themselves to something that they really care about. It also offers up opportunity. Um, you know, obviously you see someone like Massimo who's taken the opportunity to change the world, charity, and things like that. Mm. But then on a smaller level, you see these street food chefs to either provide for their family or get them out of a rural life or give them a chance to become put on the stage. How have you guys helped drawn or seen the influence of also essentially seeing their success, seeing their story, and bringing a show to it? And what responsibility do you feel in giving them, them opportunity to share that story? I think there's a huge. I think there's a huge responsibility on our end um, to to make sure that we're that we're doing our best job to reflect their lives and and their passions as honestly and authentically as we can. I, I think that you know it's hard it's hard as a documentary filmmaker to go into someone else's life and to start asking personal questions and to get people to talk to you about all of the trials and tribulations that they've been through their lowest points, their biggest successes. And so what we what we feel like we owe them in return is to make something that where we apply the same passion and rigor to our work that they apply to theirs. So I think I think that's really a responsibility that we have. And I think, you know, David's talked about this often, but I think we also as the show has evolved, Chef's Table has evolved and uh, we've been lucky enough for people to really connect with the show. We feel uh, we feel like we really want to do a good job at showing a, a real wide spectrum of the, the food world and show all the different ways that food can connect people and and how important food is kind of across the globe. Mm. And uh, also to just put out some great role models for young people to see that you know that they can that anybody can be a chef. You know, it doesn't have to be this one type of person or this one type of story. That you know, if you have something that you want, something you want to express through food, you know, go for it. Because we want to put up on straight, we want to be able to create role models. You know, help put shine a light on role models for young people that may want to get into food or apply the lessons that they're learning from these chefs' creative endeavors into whatever creative trade or whatever they want to do. Um, before we go to break, who's got a tougher grind? Three-star Michelin chef or street hawker, street food person? I think anyone working in the food industry has a <laughs> has an incredibly yeah. hard grind. I mean, people have a look. The, there's no such thing as an easy life working in food. It does not exist. And I think that we the the more uh, look, food media romanticizes the idea of of working in kitchens and. It's very difficult whether you're a street food vendor or whether you're in one of the best kitchens in the world picking herbs all afternoon. You know, it's a tough job no matter what. Awesome. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to play another song from the archives, and then we're going to be back with Brian and David here on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
Hello and welcome back to Snacky Tunes. I'm with Brian and David, co-creators in Eat Peas Street Food. And uh, during the break, we just were sort of running down that question again of, of who's got it tougher of the, the Michelin chef or the street food person. And I think we're all sort of leaning towards the street food hawker, street food person. For the length of their career, it doesn't seem like it gets easier. Yeah, I, it seems like, you know, while on your way up the ladder at any high-end Michelin restaurant, like, you're getting your butt kicked day and night, and it's extremely, extremely hard. There is a cushier light at the end of the tunnel for someone working in, like, if you make a it. nice restaurant. If you make it, um, that you can get that executive chef job, and there's some way where you can take a couple days off, whereas... In their 80, our, some of our characters are in their 80s and they are still doing the exact same uh, plate of food every single day. There's no concept of like retirement. There's no concept of like making it any further than having a line around the block for your stall and doing that every single day. So, can, can yeah. I ask since you focused on Asia mm. and uh, the most of the references I'm thinking of, like a cushy day off, is a Western approach? Sure. Yes. Was there a difference in East versus West? Um, especially since the majority of the Chef Tables episodes are also somewhat Western focused versus an Eastern approach to work ethic food and things like that. Yeah, I think the, the main difference is that in the West, there's an expectation that you're going to, every, you know, everybody thinks that they're going to they're gonna make it, they're going to be a star in this thing. <laughs> mm -hmm. Whereas, and I think that's something to do with the, um, it's called a poverty distance, it's something I picked up in this, uh, I can't remember which Malcolm Gladwell book. But in Asia, there tends to be a far greater gulf between the very rich and the poor in these places. And so there is a sense uh, in Southeast Asia, some of the places that I've seen, where they are very into the idea like, of just doing the work and just continuing to do the work. And there's not like some kind of end game where it's like, oh, and then I'm going to open my spot and do my... Like, that's not the expectation, I think, of a lot of the um, younger chefs and of the street food vendors in particular. I think I mean, be a little different. In this whole conversation of being a professional chef, being a professional cook... Um, you know, obviously the idea of chef with a capital C is such this end of the light, you know, thing mm. in your more traditional westernized structured mm. uh, type of kitchen hierarchy. But how many of these street food people that you focus on consider them cooks for chef or is that just not even part of the conversation there or does it not even matter? It's not part of the conversation, except in a couple of cases, the international community has like J recognized mm -hmm. like J Fi getting her Michelin star or yeah. um, Dalchand going to Singapore for like the mm -hmm. uh, to street represent his country to, to the Street Food Congress, you know. And but th these things are unexpected to them. It's always like a surprise. It's not something that they are aiming for. And I think it's really cool to be able to take um, J Fi and elevate her with a Michelin star and show her as an example about how you know street food is just as valuable. Like her style of cooking you know, out in the street of Bangkok is just as valuable as any other restaurant. I think I think that's awesome. I mean, J5 is a good example, and then also Troc in sort of deciding that she was going to go from mud creepers to more high-end seafood, sure. and J5 has the legendary crab omelet. Did you find that there were these aha moments uh, in each of these chefs that took them from being your common, average mm. street food vendor to someone that was more elevated and more successful? Yes, there's, there's always a turning point. There's always some kind of breakthrough. And that's usually, it's linked to their personal life and their experience. But there's always one, there's something that turns it, like you, you mentioned about um, those characters that you're talking about, um, 
you know, again, like Toyo is an example when he started like busting out the blowtorch and realizing that if I do it with my hands, it won't rip the thing. And then he figured out like, oh, this is a very unique kind of product. And that's kind of what, um, you know, get increases the demand for their for their shop. And it's kind of like the turning point. So in every episode, we have like what we call the of our main character, we have like an A story and a B story mm-hmm. and A story being their, um, their personal journey. And then the B story being their kind of um, creative journey or business journey. And at some point, there is an epiphany that connects the both the A and the B story. And that's what like leads us to our kind of thesis or our conclusion of each episode, what we're, what we're learning about these stories and these characters. I mean, not to get too technical about it as well, but the way that you shoot Chef's Table versus Street Food, you bring the same dedicated approach. It's not like you're having a different sort of aesthetic or oh, things yeah. like that at all. Which, and you're paying respects to Eagle that. But it seems that with the street food, the actual logistics of shooting <laughs> that high end is probably a little bit tougher because you are not inside these oh, buildings yeah. you're out there. So I don't want to get too technical, yeah. but I would like to hear about that approach and how you plan for your shoot like that. Sure. I think it's, I think it's a, uh, the, the best way to describe the, the difference between shooting street food and shooting chef's table is that it's a different, a different level of control. Mm-hmm. When we go in to shoot a chef's table episode, oftentimes we're so, in a lot of ways taking control of the kitchen. Um, we're hanging lights in their kitchen space. We're we're controlling the schedule of the chef. We're you know we're really kind of inserting ourselves into the day to day living, breathing mechanism and organism that is a kit a, a kitchen. And they have the space for us to do so. Yes. And then when <laughs> you're put on your the, gear, you put the box yeah, and put yeah. all the like stuff there's in. a dining room. Yeah. When when you're on when you're on the streets of Delhi and you're uh, you know trying to film the Nahari stew being sold which is this buffalo stew um, and you're uh, you're basically jostling the camera people are jostling with the 150 people lined up to get the stew who just want their meal for that because they don't care about the camera they don't care about yeah. the television show it's um, it's a different challenge uh, for anyone on our crew and then in addition to that we we did film during the monsoon season, so we kind of went, <laughs> we kind of went right into the most humid uh, uh, weather that you could conceivably imagine for shooting a show outdoors uh, in Asia. Yeah, I would also think it's a, this is a good moment to kind of like just recognize the um, the talent and perseverance of our you know of our physical production team, and many of the people working on street food come from Chef's Table, but elevated a level. So, for example, like we have a camera assistant um, who's shot, you know, he's been camera a uh, first camera assistant on most of the chef's tables, I would say, or at least half of them, is now a cinematographer. Our story producers are now kind of the producers, essentially directing what's happening in the field, um, and so they're taking the full cinematic arsenal of chef's table, but executing it in vastly more challenging conditions. In very like. We're in air-conditioned dining rooms and kitchens, a lot of chef's table. Like, there is no air conditioning out there. Like, it's hot. It's humid. They're carrying a camera and lenses that are just as heavy. We're not compromising the quality of the filming at all. There's no quiet spaces for sound. We have a brilliant sound recordist. Um, you know, it, it's, it's like these guys have done such an incredible job maintaining the standard, yet doing it in the field in this radically, you know, uncontrolled, you know, this wild setting. I mean, you can 
feel that come through in a positive way. I think of the beauty shot that was on the bike seat in the Delhi mm-hmm. episode, or the um, wonton maker who seemed like he literally just stepped out of his hawker stall, yes. did the interview, and was like, okay, I got to go back to work. He literally, he literally walks That's back literally into the stall at the end of the interview right. in the shot. And yeah. I got, he goes, that was nice. Okay, yeah. who's next yeah. round of yeah. And so you get to see that it's a little bit more intimate in some ways. Sure. You, yeah. re- you really get to peek into that, and you really get a feel that people are sharing I mean, look, social media these days and media is all about sometimes presenting a life mm-hmm. that people want you to see. Yeah. And this very felt much felt like that that not had creeped in as much mm-hmm. um, or that these people were just cooking. I don't honest is such another trigger word, but this food that they're like they're cooking about it. And whether a TV show comes, an Instagrammer comes, it, they were going to still do the same thing tonight or tomorrow. Sure. And that's actually another element is that the chefs on chef's table you know, are very, very accommodating to us, you know, and we're, we're grateful to them. Um, our street food vendors, they don't need us. Like, they don't need us, like, I'm not, saying, I'm not saying the chef's table chefs need us, but, you know, there is a certain, like, mutual benefit. In, um, for our street food vendors, they're doing their thing every day, and it's up to us to accommodate what they're doing and not get in the way of their schedule. Because if they're not on time with their, if, if Shork's not there with her snails, or you know, if, if, if J-Fi's not starting that fire and making those crab novels on time, you're gonna get a whole line of very pissed off local people at Bangkok and they're not gonna be happy that some like foreign film crew is in there screwing up their daily routine. So that's a, a major factor in, uh, in, in what we're doing here is trying to make sure that we're not disturbing what is actually happening there every day. Can you give us one, no names, no something like that, but one maybe battle story of where it didn't maybe go the way you wanted it to because you were shooting on the street because it was a whole different approach to the talent you were working with? Well, I'll just say very vaguely that, you know, we've gotten on the ground in a city and trying, you know, we're shooting a few different chefs there. We're trying to figure out, you know, who we need a little bit of, um, we need a little bit of compromise in the time. Like, you know, give us a little bit of extra time to put a camera on your motorcycle or that kind of thing. And, um, you know, if there's a situation where the chef truly is just does not care at all about what we're doing, then it makes it hard to uh, to get it done. You know, so it might require them waking up just like a little bit earlier than they normally do. Um, so we just need like a little bit of give. Just a little bit. Um, I mean, you talk about in the show as well, and also with you guys sharing with cameras, this push and pull of modernization mm-hmm. where a light is shine on them in a way that you maybe 10 years ago they would never thought or anyone would think that food would be the focus of anything or that people would be willing to travel this far or that you would even know about it because you can now scroll. I've never been to Indonesia, but I can go look uh, on my phone at a geotag of Indonesia and be like, oh, that looks like the thing that's popping up and things like that. But on the flip side, as you mentioned earlier, it's also changing the street food culture and it's getting rid of it. So what do you see as a balance? What have you guys learned as what's needed for modernity and what's the negative side of it? Gosh, I mean, that's a big... That's a big question that I'm not sure. I'm not sure worthy. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure we're the people that have the answer to that. But I think the one thing that we that we are hoping that people take away is what what a value add from a cultural standpoint these street food vendors are to each of these places. There's, and I think we've seen it so much in the response to the show, the pride that people from these countries feel. And the discussions that they're having about like, oh, this dish is this dish is my favorite dish growing up. Oh, how is there not this dish? You know, the the kind of the discussion and pride that people have in their food, I, I think hopefully that comes through, and and that people recognize that those traditions 
that, that have been passed down from generation to generation and have evolved over time, that those things are worth keeping around. And I think that's, that's kind of something that, that you see all over the world in, in, in every artisan craft field is that it's harder and harder to sustain traditions as people change career paths or uh, the next generation doesn't want to take over the family business. And I think it's really important that as we evolve and have all these amazing opportunities, um, that as societies we all remember the traditions and the, and the kind of groundings of where we come from. Mm. Yeah. Um, it's shown, and to dovetail off that, that the street food really does show the history of the city. I think about the Delhi episode and about uh, how different cultures came across different lands when borders were less you know, uh, opaque and more porous. Um, but personally, what was the f- your favorite lesson you learned about the history of one of the countries you were in through the food that you ate and the food that you, you got to see? Hmm. That's such a hard question. Yeah, I feel like I'm, yeah, I'm in essay mode now. I think, the, I think the Delhi episode is a really good example of that as you mentioned, because it's a place that is a, it's a, it's been a melting pot of many different um, societies and cultures over the years. And the idea, I think, that you could have groups that eat meat and groups that don't eat meat and that they could all come together and almost in a few city blocks, you can walk down the street and get chola bhatura, you can get nahari stew, you can go and get kebabs, and all of those dishes have storied histories coming from different people with different cultural backgrounds, and that you can kind of, as a person in 2019, walk down the street and be transported back in time to each of those places. That's an incredibly powerful experience to be able to be happen, to, to, to happen. And very rarely, I think, do you get to step back and go, wait a minute, what is it that I'm eating? What is it tied to? You know? And so... Yeah. Maybe there's, I'm sure that there are things that we have both eaten that we've never even thought about where it came from. How did this tradition come to pass? Yeah. How did this plate of food? And why happen? does this plate of, why does this plate of food exist? Um, and I know that, you know, there, that, for example, like new, like the hand cut noodles in Seoul and about how that, you know, the influence from the Korean War and certain things that were available and were not available led to noodles becoming incredibly popular or, um, you know, the uh, influence of uh, the French colonizers in Vietnam and how even today, even after the French have been expelled, you know, had been expelled from the country, banh mi, you know, is on a baguette and, um, well, and, the idea and that, snails <laughs> being a delicacy. Well, and the idea that the Vietnamese people took the banh mi, which the, the French had brought in and said, we can make that better. We can yeah. make the bag- we can make it. the and baguette then, better, and they took the colonial style food and they and they owned it, and now they own it. it's their food now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I love that bond me of, of the guy who's been there representing his family stand and being like, yeah, we make a better sandwich than the French. Yeah, and <laughs> uh, just I love one of the shots that I'm just obsessed with in the show is just how easily the knife goes into uh, the bread and like the sound effect. It's all like the actual sound of the thing. So uh, yeah, if you like a sandwich, highly recommend. Yeah. That episode. A lot of baking soda, I've heard, is the, is the key. The key is the baking soda. Baking Brian's, soda. Brian's a big uh, baking one. <laughs> um, so I want to end on a final note, because one of my favorite parts of the show was the music, hmm. um, which is different from each episode, and it represents the culture, and it represents that. How did you guys pick the music? What was the decision? When did you guys decide that you really want to feature uh, music from that country or that city 
um, in each episode to be the backdrop to all this food and all, all the camera work. Yeah. Well, I think that this show more than, probably more than Chef's Table, the idea is we're transporting you to a place. We're not just telling you a story. We're, we're putting you in the place. And so using local music in the local language um, is part of that and creating that flavor. We were like, okay, what would they be, like, if you're in that, if you're, if you're, if you're there, you know, what's playing on the radio? You know, like, or, or, what, or what is their favorite old song that they used to listen to when they were younger or something like that? And just kind of combining the chef's table style of original score, because we have some very nice pieces of original music that we've composed um, to help us tell the story. Um, just putting the, 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 the local flavor and just, again, just like, what does it feel like to be there? You know, what are the sounds of that place? Yeah. Awesome. Well, guys, I can't thank you enough for sitting down. Congratulations. Uh, if people want to watch the show, where can they go? They can go to Netflix. Go to Netflix. Street food. Street food. And if they wanted to follow you guys or the show on social media, where can they go? Um, at this is David Geld. And at Brian McGee. B-R-I-M-C-G-I. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we're going to run this as the whole show. This is it. So we're going to do uh, one song from the archives, and then we're going to be done with the show, and then we'll see you next week. Um, one half your host, Darren Bresnitz. This is Snacky Tunes. Thank you so much to Heritage Radio Network, and we will see you next week. Thanks, Darren. Thank you. Bye.
talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.